Geek number three, special Thanksgiving episode, where we talk about blog trackbacks, time management, and some holiday gadgets. Recorded November 21st, 2007, on the event horizon of the Black Hole Cygnus. That's pretty accurate, because no information gets out of this podcast. You saved it, Pat. <laughs> hey, All right. by the way, did you know that we are a genius-level publication? Really? According to www.criticsrant.com slash bb slash reading underscore level dot aspx. I don't expect you to remember that. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. You have to be a genius to remember that. <laughs> um, tweakinggeek.com slash podcast is written at the genius reading level. So does that that means one of two things. Either we have really smart readers or we are we are very poor writers and you need to be a genius to understand the crap that we're turning out. I'll leave the answer for that as an exercise for the reader. I'll give you a hint. It's the crap. <laughs> so you know, Pat, with this like this whole blog thing, you know, we both got blogs and now Tweaking Geek has a blog. One thing that I am completely incapable of understanding is trackbacks. I know how to comment, I know how to write entries, I know how to modify the CSS to make it look pretty, but what the hell are trackbacks? I've been, like, where do I enter in a trackback? Like, why do they even exist? They just, like, I'm mystified. There are a couple types of trackbacks, um, but the two that really matter in the blog world are trackbacks and pingbacks. uh, What's the difference? Um, a trackback is more of a manual uh, process. Um, a pingback is actually kind of a standard that uh, supports automatic discovery of a trackback. Um, so I'll start with a trackback, and then I'll, it'll be pretty obvious what a what a pingback is from that. Um, you can actually find a spec for trackbacks at www.sixapart.com slash pronet slash docs slash trackback underscore spec. Yeah, six apart. They make movable type, right? Yes. Yeah, I think they came up with trackbacks. That's why movable type, which is the main Tech Geeks blog, is a movable type one, has seems to have a lot of support for trackbacks. But there's not really a lot of explanation as to what you can actually do with it or why you would even bother. Correct. So um, a trackback is based on a more general kind of thing called a linkback, um, which I've never really seen implemented. Just mean it's not out there, but um, I haven't run into it. Um, basically, you get um, a really short post request that has the required parameter of a URL. So I have to post to whatever I'm tracking back to a URL. And then you have three optional fields of a title for the uh, post back entry, an excerpt of the post back entry, and the name of the blog sending the post back. So a post back initiates at um, a blog. So let's say uh, I'm on my blog, world4.com, and I decide I want to uh, track back your blog okay. at maintechgeeks.com. What I would do is uh, take the, the, UR, the permalink URL to a specific blog posting on yeah. maintechgeeks, and when I was typing my blog posting, I'd make sure to add that as a URL that I'm going to track back to. Um, and then when I post my blog entry, part of what my blog software will do is um, follow any trackbacks I've told it and attempt to notify your blog that I've referenced it. Okay. And at that point, it's up to your blog how to handle it. So in the case of wor- my blog, World 4, 
um, an incoming trackback will be treated as a comment from an unknown user, and uh, my security rules will have that held for moderation until I can go approve it. Okay. Now, a pingback, uh, like I said before, um, some blogs support it, some don't. I know uh, WordPress, for instance, does support it. That's actually a protocol by which um, when I post, just in general, um, any link, my blog will crawl that link and look for a specific uh, link rel equals pingback up in the header. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it finds that, it, that should actually be a link to an XML RPC handler. And if it finds that, I don't. I won't even have to give it a trackback URL. It'll auto discover that for me and post the appropriate trackback automatically. Uh, and I use movable type for blog.maintechies.com. There's a, where I have the entries. There's a thing that says outbound trackback URLs. I bet that's where I would enter that, right? Yes, that is where you would enter that. So now, wh- now when I want to do that, if I'm going to enter a trackback to another blog, do I just use? What do I do? You know, generally speaking, um, if a blog supports trackbacks um, and you view a specific entry, typically you'll have to look at the entry. You won't just get it, say, on the front page of the blog. Um, but when you're viewing a, a post, um, somewhere in there, usually at the bottom, there will be um, a comment such as, you know, trackback URL, trackback URI, um, something like that. Okay. Uh, and you would just copy that link and paste that in. That's interesting. So, all right, so... Why would I log a trackback? A trackback is really a great way to uh, to build to build traffic and to build community, depending which way which way you're approaching it, how cynical you feel that day. For instance, uh, where World Four, we do a lot of commenting on massively multiplayer games. I might find an article on um, another uh, blog in that genre, uh, say uh, RafCoster.com, one of the famous designers. Um, and if I want to discuss his post, I would track back his blog. Um, and then ideally people who read his blog would see in the comments section, hey, look, there was a track back from this other site discussing this topic. Um, and it starts letting you build you know, your, your back and forth discussions um, when you want to discuss other people's ideas in more depth. And that's, uh, that's the way I see it used most commonly is one person will start a discussion thread. Somebody else will take you know one paragraph of that discussion and say, well, hey, this was a really interesting idea. I'm going to run with this part of it um, and kind of build a, a distributed discussion that way. You know, and again, just preserving those back and forth links that everyone knows. You know, A, the blog owners know who's discussing them, um, which is it's always good to have a feel for your community that way. Yeah. And uh, B... You know, the added benefit of if a smaller blog tracks back successfully to a larger blog, uh, they stand a good chance of getting a little traffic spike uh, from that. That's cool. So so almost like the track back, this this is really what makes blogs a community rather than just a bunch of standalone websites. Certainly part of it. Absolutely. So everybody who's listening to this podcast should track back to tweakinggeek.com or www.tweakinggeek.com slash podcast. One thing I have noticed, though, is that with trackbacks, it's yet another way for people to spam you because I looked in the main Tech Geeks blog and I noticed that I have like 2,000 junk trackbacks. Yes, you uh, trackbacks being an automated mechanism are a very, very uh, famous way to send spam. It's a single post, no user account required. Um, It's very easy to, to bot that. One other thing to worry about, by the way, yeah. is uh, there is some etiquette around trackbacks. Oh, really? Uh, specifically, like don't trackback more than once to, to a given post. Um, and one place you have to worry about that is, for instance, if your blog supports pingbacks, 
don't enter a trackback URL um, because then you'll, you'll you'll ping back and you'll track back, and some blog owners get offended at that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah would I, you get offended at that? I would probably delete one of them. Oh. I, I'd be thrilled to get a trackback. So. Yeah, I was thinking. Oh, I got a trackback on Main Tech Geeks once. I don't know. That's not there anymore. But it was like a real track back to a real blog. So yeah, and it's very common. I mean, if someone's interested in what you're writing about, you'll you'll be surprised how quickly you start getting a couple links back. I've decided I'm only going to write about bikini models. You'll probably get a lot of track backs. I will, except for I think that they probably will make my blog get caught by Net Nanny and that sort of thing. That's true. All right. Over the next few weeks at the Tweaking Geek podcast, we want to talk about some of the technology we use during the holiday season that makes that makes it a little bit more bearable. So for our first holiday technology segment, I was kind of thinking about what we might talk about. So would it be the fancy new gadget you're going to get someone for Christmas, or would it be you know, something that you can use to help make, you know, speed up your Christmas shopping or whatever. Well, I was thinking because today happens to be the day before Thanksgiving, and I am in charge of all the desserts for Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. I would like to talk about some tech in the kitchen. All right, let's do that. I, and I was thinking, like, what do we use for technology in the kitchen? Like, in my kitchen, I have a refrigerator, an oven, a toaster, a microwave, and those are all, like, they're all classified as technology because they are something that, you know, I don't have to store all of my food in a hole in the ground with a big block of ice. But one piece of technology I like that really has actually made my life a lot easier is my KitchenAid mixer, which is a very manly thing to have. So anyone who thinks that it's wimpy to have a KitchenAid mixer, then they can just whatever. See, I, I didn't think so, you'd say it was wimpy. I, I, I just thought you'd say my laptop that, that's my kitchen technology, looking up recipes. But let, let's talk about your kitchen. That's true. Well, uh, one piece of kitchen technology, which is good, which I'm going to track back to Tweaking Geek number one, is that an iPod Touch with its integrated web browser is actually nice to have to pull up your <laughs> recipe on. But there's also another cool piece of technology for recipes. It's called Paper. And usually that's easy. Be- that's better because the iPod Touch doesn't do as well when it's covered in flour. I've I had I used to use this hand mixer for mix when I made cakes and that sort of thing. Incidentally, for all of our listeners, I'm kind of a hobbyist baker, and I really like to kind of throw things together. And one thing about baking is that if you're a good programmer, you can kind of like you're you're kind of like taking the opposite role of a computer to a programmer because I have a recipe. And it is my responsibility as a baker to follow that recipe. It gives me a series of steps, and I have to follow Does that them. When I bomb and out a recipe, I'm trying that it, you know, it, it's a bug and it's Microsoft's fault. It is actually. I reboot my oven every time my uh, recipes fail. Well, it's kind of interesting the whole like cook versus baker thing. But the thing is, when you're like baking, it's not nearly as forgiving. Like cooking is like really an art, but I'd say baking is like a science. You know, it's you know the right proportion. Right, cooking's a very interactive process. Baking's more uh, a, a batch process that you kick off and it runs in the background. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that was that was lovely. Um, like, how many times have you like been cooking something and at the very end? You're like, you know, there's a a spice in the the cupboard or whatever that I haven't used in a while. So I think I'm just gonna turn that right up or you know put that in and see what it tastes it, like. It runs and with an interactive GUI. That's right. That's right. Um, can, can I do a so GUI pun I'm now? Going to talk, 
<laughs> a gooey pod. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to talk about Kitchen Event here. Excellent. So I have a KitchenAid mixer. I've had it for about a year. I, if, if you've ever seen a KitchenAid, it is. Let's just say that if you ever like are having trouble keeping your your boat in the port, what you should do is chain a KitchenAid to it and you know throw that over the side and it will go nowhere. The KitchenAid is a honking piece of metal <laughs> and it, it's a has a strong motor. And it's just made to last. And just just to and back up a little bit, in case anyone's not real familiar with these, KitchenAid is kind of the the Cadillac of mixers. It's a, a giant really stand is. mixer with a bowl and a huge arm that destroys your dough inside the bowl. It is. Well, and the interesting thing is is that the KitchenAid is much more than a mixer. It's a decoration. Like because I'm looking at the uh, like a, a website right now, and there's about uh, they they're selling KitchenAid mixers, the Artisan mixer, which is like basically a stand mixer with a bowl that you kind of it kind of secures into the state the base. It has uh, about thirty different colors, and they are named very interesting things like majestic yellow, ice, almond cream, reef blue, imperial gray, and uh, Cranberry pink, which is your favorite color, Pat. But my, I have the best. Mine is Bing cherry, which is this cool red color. But the cool thing about these things are is that they're built to last. My grandmother got a KitchenAid mixer when for her wedding, and she still uses it. She's never had to have it repaired or it or anything. It still has like, you know, the the woven. Uh, you know what cloth I'm saying? Cloth insulated the, power. The, yes, oh. yes, cloth cloth insulated. Yes, that's very true. I, I th- this is a really handy piece of technology because you'd think, well, okay, it's a mixer. How many things do you need to mix? All right, let me ask you. I have a very very serious question for you. How many things do you need to mix on a on a regular day? And that's not just your normal mixing it up. <laughs> um, I can't say I do a lot of mixing type stuff. I, as you said, I do cooking like in the frying pan kind of stuff. Right. So you don't. You know, you think like, how much mixing do you need to do? It's a two hundred sixty dollar mixer, basically. How like how? What's the return on investment for that? You'd need to mix up like, uh, you know, Lake Michigan in order for it to really like ever make back any capital on that. I bake a lot of cakes. I bake cakes and take them into my coworkers because, and I don't really eat them, but they seem to like to eat a lot of junk food, and I'm trying to keep them all fatter than me, so. So I look like I'm just a super healthy person. Excellent plan. It is. It's I, actually I tell them on a daily basis. So and I know that at least one of my coworkers listens to this, and I can say this. My, I tell them that the whole purpose I bake for them is to keep them all fatter than me. And uh, well, first of all, it's like super strong, and uh, like so you can get these different uh, attachments for it. And uh, I, I have as I say I have a pasta maker, and a kind of an interesting story about that. I got this pasta maker, and it comes with a little book with the recipe in it. And as I said, you're when you're baking or you know cooking, kind of, we'll say, things with flour in them. You tend to really want to uh, follow the directions. So I followed the directions. I took my three eggs, and two tablespoons of water, and a cup of flour or whatever. And I mixed them all up into this dough, and I plugged the pasta maker, which is basically a hopper with a little screw auger inside, which. When, with a hole in the hopper, and you put the uh, the dough in, and it extrudes the dough out 
through this plate with holes in it. And, you know, there's a plate with flat holes for linguine. There's a plate with little holes for angel hair, a plate with big holes for spaghetti, and one with, like, one big kind of, like, long hole for lasagna noodles, which is pretty okay. decent. And it also has as a meat grinder, too. So if you ever need any meat ground, I can do that. So, um... So I plugged it in. It's so I read the book. It says turn on to speed ten. I'll tell you, speed like five on that is tra- faster than the speed of light. You know, basically when you turn on the uh, the mixer at speed five, it like mixes into last week. It's going so fast. <laughs> so by so ten, you're in you know Carl Sagan contact, and you go off to visit the Vegans in another galaxy. Yes, exactly. That Carl uh, Carl Sagan like Carl Sagan like has no equations. Stephen Hawking has no equations for how the mixer goes at speed ten. So I take the the hopper, the little pasta maker, plug it into it, turn it on to speed ten, just like the instructions say. Put the little walnut sized pieces of dough in there, and I'm like, this is awesome. So it kind of sucks down the the dough. And it's like you can hear it straining. It's you know usually it's like and this is like you know like that. And uh, I'm like I'm like okay. It says that you run it at speed ten with this dough. And then all of a sudden it like basically like is going so poorly that I'm like I just have to turn this off. I'm nervous. Then I disconnect it, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to let it sit for a minute because it was kind of warm on top. And then uh, I turn it back on, and I'm like, oh, it's working now. It spins for like three seconds on speed, like one, or stir, I think it's called. It spins for like three seconds, and then you know it kind of slows down and stops and makes that humming sound that electric motors make when you know something's preventing them from actually moving. Oh, no. Yes, it was terrible. So I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever because... Or that's not cool, but like the KitchenAid is the coolest thing ever because for Christmas gifts, I have this one part of my family that uh, it's like my step family where there's lots of like aunts and uncles and cousins and all that, which I see them once a year and I like them a lot and they're very nice people, but you know, I just it would be financially prohibitive to buy all of them gifts. So what I do is I make something for everybody. Like one year I made uh, like pumpkin bread. I made every, every family got a loaf of, you know, my famous pumpkin bread. It wasn't actually famous until I told them it was famous, but, you know, now that they're calling it Craig's Famous Pumpkin Bread, it must be. Now, it's, so been, I, it's been mentioned on our podcast, and all 30 people who've listened to us know it, so it's famous. It is famous. I, I'm, like, beside myself with fame right now. Um, so, I need this, so I'm like, this is... this. This sucks because my KitchenAid does not seem to be working, and the holiday season is coming up, and it is like my you know biggest ally in this whole making food thing. So for my uh, cooking tonight, I'm making for Thanksgiving tomorrow. It would have been really nice to have for mixing up my pumpkin pie uh, filling. Uh, it would have been nice to have my KitchenAid, but now I'm using a, an old GE hand mixer. So but you're you're really missing your. KitchenAid now. Oh, it's terrible that I'm missing it. Well, it's it's really cool because have you ever made bread? And I, by bread, I don't mean money. Um, no, the it's really cool because if you've ever made bread, uh, it, it's like without a mixer, you have to like mix the flour and the yeast, and there's just this whole like thing about kneading it. And when you really need dough, it's just it, like it takes a long time, and it's 
like laborious. This it has a little attachment that's a hook. You put all your ingredients in the bowl, and you turn on and you put on the hook, and you go watch TV for a few minutes while it needs it. Excellent. And then you turn it off, and it rises. Then you turn it back on, and it needs some more. It's awesome. So I think for the holiday season, uh, you can. It's it's great for uh, like these big meals that we have around you know Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, I guess Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever other holidays fall here, uh, where people tend to have these big meals. It's great to have something that you can actually start something mixing or grinding or kneading or whatever, and you can go like do something else because like a cool thing is if you have like a when you make a cake and you want to make like frosting. You, what you could do is, while you're kind of like taking care of the uh, the cake itself and putting it in the oven or whatever, you can actually just have your frosting being made, like not requiring any uh, inter- intervention until it's done. It, and it it's you know does a more thorough job than a hand mixer and has a lot more versatility. And as I say, it's a big hunk of metal that you know feels like it should just have like you know nothing should stop it, except for possibly pasta dough. <laughs> Okay. Aside from your defective pasta maker, then KitchenAid, buy, sell, or hold? Uh, definitely buy. It, it's if it, it well, buy if you are a kitchen aficionado. If you want something in your kitchen that can really make things kind of fun and make things kind of more efficient, then definitely buy. So one thing I'd like to talk about is. Uh, a- problem that's cropped up uh, for me before, and it's, it's pretty common to a, to a lot of technically-minded folks, uh, programmers especially. Um, Meeting women? Yes. Uh, no. Time management. It's, it's, it seems to be something that a lot of the, the detail-oriented, technically-minded folks uh, find difficult. Like, what do you mean by time management? Like, uh, getting to meetings on time, or...? Managing your own work time effectively, um, and that's, you know, it's a very common thing. As a programmer, you'll have, or uh, more generally as a software or IT professional, um, you'll have a list of project work to get done, typically uh, more than one project. Um, you'll have interruption-based work where you have support items to deal with and they come in on an ongoing basis uh, and, and items like that. Well, like, what is it that you personally have issues with with this time management in general, for me, it's not letting things slip through the cracks. Uh, you, you know, you have a lot of incoming uh, request volume, and it's you know, it, it can be really difficult uh, to keep everything and make sure you don't miss one request. You don't uh, let a deadline slip because you were working on a support request for a day, uh, things like that. You know, I, I can see that because I've personally had a lot of issues too, where I've been working on, say, a project, say a code, you know, some sort of coding activity where you know you really just need some uninterrupted time and but if you're good at what you do people always want you for something right right and they keep bugging you not bugging you but they keep they consulting with you and like how do you like what do you think i think that like an interruption never translate you know a five minute interruption never translate to just simply five minutes very rarely um so, I mean, it's it's the kind of problem that people. I mean, and this does, this is also isn't uh, limited to developers. I mean, your your infrastructure type folks, your your IT support folks. I mean, they all still have project type work and uh, interruption type work. Um, so the the first problem is that 
uh, in general, time management is an issue for any worker in any field. You know, making sure you're hitting your deadlines, you're not slipping behind, you're not wasting time. Um, and it's it's really compounded by the the heavy interruption factor of the IT industry. Um, the other pro- another problem I've seen anyway is, and uh, certainly uh, I have this happen all the time. Uh, you get assignments you don't want to do. Um, the, there's less interesting work out there. Um, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> and those tend those tend to slide in my experience. Uh, I, I see it on my team all the time. It's something I always have to watch out for. That you know, as soon as I can tell someone's uninterested in a, in one component of a project, um, they're much more likely to let the schedule slide on that. Um, and that's a that's a pure procrastination issue that you know you tend to put off the work that you're not enjoying. See, I, I sometimes have the reverse problem because I always think of the cool work as being like dessert. So I want to have din- you know, you want to eat dinner first. You want to eat your broccoli before you eat cake, right? So you know, I'm going to do this really boring task or whatever, get all those out of the way, so I can have just like a free calendar to do the cool stuff. But then at the very end, you start rushing on the cool stuff because you've done all the uninteresting stuff and didn't kind of schedule them to be kind of concurrent. So you've jumped ahead of me already and gone from our problems to our solutions. Um, but but that's, a, that's a very good approach. Uh, I, I call that the do-it-anyway solution. Um, I take that a little further. If, there's, if, if I catch myself slipping uh, or I catch one of my team members slipping on something that really needs to be delivered, um, I'll explicitly allocate time. Um, for myself, I'll, I'll put it into my calendaring system and say, okay, between 1 and 3 p.m. every day I'm working on this on this item until it's complete. So are you in charge of actually not only managing your own time but other people's time? Um, I'm a, I, I have, among my many hats, as, as many IT folks, uh, I do some project management. Uh, okay. So I do have a, I'm, I'm the senior developer on a team. I kind of try to keep the the rest of the cats herded nicely in the same direction as best I can. Yes, managing other people's time on a software development team definitely is a challenge. Um, so, so approaches to managing your time, um, because there's there's no solution. You're, you're not going to one day realize, oh, if I just do it this way, I'll never have trouble again. Uh, managing your time is, a, is an ongoing daily aspect of your job. Um, at, at least it has been for me. Some people have a knack for it, but they seem to be few and far between. Like, 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 what are some of the things that really like kind of get in the way of of that? I think one one aspect is there's um, there's a lack of discipline in our industry, and there's a lack of process in many many places. You, you get a lot of very talented uh, develop, very talented programmers certainly, um, who end up in this field. Um, without having had a lot of guidance and strict process, and they get very resistant to it just by nature. Um, when you've when you've been very freewheeling, um, it's not intuitive that taking a little more time to discipline yourself and plan your work will result in success. A great book, by the way, that uh, I'm, a lot of my ideas here come from um, is Time Management for System Administrators. Um, Sounds like an invigorating read. <laughs> it's actually not as bad as you think. The 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 author Thomas Limoncelli has a great uh, style. It's it's it'll make you chuckle often enough that you probably won't lose interest. Um, and it's not a very long book. Um, I read it uh, at the gym in about a week of working out. So what you're saying is that it, it's not a very long book because they want you to be able to fit it into your schedule to read it. Exactly. Um, it, it said a lot of the concepts really 
don't don't end up being deep. It's like make a list of what you need to do. Prioritize it. Work on the things on the top of your list. At the end of a day, make sure everything on your list has been addressed. Even if addressing it means um, a support request came in, I couldn't do this. I push it off to tomorrow. You know, you it gives you a good uh, grasp of what you're doing. Well, let me ask you this. All right, so you have your list. Like, you know how a lot of people have a to-do list? I've tried this on many iterations where I have a list of things I need to do. These are the, you know, the things. And what I do is, you know, I'll kind of reorganize the list, see what's the top priority. But have you ever found that you have this list and what you end up having is these straggler items on the list that just they're always there to do and you never do them because this book uh, actually addresses that exact topic. Great title for it: "The Ever-Growing To-Do List of Doom." <laughs> yes, that is. <laughs> it happens, I, I, and at some point, you just have to be realistic and say, you know, I know these things are on my long-term list, but realistically, they're not there now. You remove the items from your to-do list, put them in a safe place, you know, write them down on a notebook somewhere that you keep for this purpose, and say, okay, one of my daily items is check to see if I can do anything from my long-term list. Uh, it's well, it's a question of, of organize. You you want to accomplish two things. You want to organize your work such that um, you you know you have a grasp on it. You know and you know when you're slipping. At the same time. You want to reward yourself for success with this process. So by seeing, you know, hey, I, you know, sure, I, I had to bump three items to tomorrow and put one item uh, on hold for now, you know, but I got these these four top priority items done, and I got these other couple of uh, support requests handled that weren't even on my original schedule. So a lot of it is simply um, showing yourself that hey, once once you take control of your workload, um, you really can get ahead of it. See, what I would be more inclined to do would be to declare to-do list bankruptcy, <laughs> where, I, where I basically would say, I'm just never going to do any of these things and just crumple up the to-do list and throw it in the trash. That's often followed by real bankruptcy when, when your manager finds out. So another question that comes up then are systems. Um, you know, As geeks, we like toys, we like gadgets, and we like systems for managing things. Um, personally, I use uh, what I like to call the cult of Franklin Covey. Um, which is the company that produced the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People book. Which is a good book. It is a good book. It's a good read, uh, even even for a techie who might uh, look kind of look with a jaundiced eye towards the business folks sometimes. Um, it, Actually, I only read the first two habits, but I thought they were good, and I just kind of like inferred that the rest of the book would be great. <laughs> um, well, Franklin Covey does produce a variety of uh Project tracking, time tracking, daily planner type materials. Uh, they're extremely uh, expensive for notebook paper. Um, I do use them myself. Actually, I use the electronic version. Uh, it integrates with wow. Outlook. Um, so all my tasks and calendar entries are linked through their system to goals. Um, and they, they also have some long-term planning tools in there. Um, which is really where the, the, all this time management stuff starts. Is you have to look at what are my long-term goals, you know, and from that you can really derive which, which items are, are the most critical to work on. Above all, I really recommend time management for system administrators. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the title makes it sound very specialized. There's actually not a whole lot of reference to specific tasks of system administration. Um, it's more like time management, for technically talented people with an interruption-based job but lots of projects to do. That title was too long. They told them to choose. Yes, too long and uninteresting. <laughs> so, have, I mean, have you run into any of these 
uh, incidents as or any of these problems? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, for my own self, I, I run into this problem all the time. First of all, as I mentioned before, like every day is like a bankrupt to do list day because, like I. I'm actually pretty good at setting up a schedule, you know, looking at, you know, because I'm a, so I'm a consultant, you know, and I have, you know, these like kind of time budgets, you know, I might say this task of this project takes five hours or it takes 15 hours and I'm, you know, I schedule it from this day to this day and using our, you know, our system, our project management system, I can see, you know, of all the things I've scheduled, what is like my workload, then invariably, I just work on whatever needs to get done. So, well, and everybody else does too. And I mean, I think sometimes time management feels like this unattainable goal where, you know, it's like I need to, this is going to take eight hours. I need to work on it from Tuesday, you know, from Tuesday to Thursday. But like, what if something comes up, you know, well, you know, this other like interruption, which you were talking about has come up. Well, now I'm going to be working on it until Friday. And, what I end up having having is all these projects with all these tasks, you know, stretched over a certain period of time, and you know it links your syncs back to our Outlook. So I have Outlook with like you know fifty tasks on it per day because it's you know all these things that just kind of double up on each other. So I think that this whole like idea of like tightly managing your time is kind of like this holy grail of uh, software development teams because I, I'm you know I'm still like you know I've been doing it for a year you know and I you know this kind of managing you know a team almost and it just seems as though I'm no closer now to being successful with it than I ever was before well there's I mean there's there's a couple things to think about there one is pulling ourselves away from the IT role you know as as a business function which you know in the end is what we are you're beyond beyond the IT department what we're trying to work to is a, you know a more accurate ability to present what we do and the time it takes um, so you know in the sense that when dealing with a customer internal or external what you want to do is say hey we told you we're going to take you know $60,000 of developer time and 2 months and present this software on this day and it will work um you know, and that's where the concept of trying to tightly schedule, you know, we'll take three days to do this task, five days to do that task, uh, comes in. But more importantly, um, you don't always have to hit these these dates. What you really have to do is make sure that um, you're managing all of your expectations correctly. And part of that is making sure that there's the best communication you can have uh, with your with your team, with you know developers working for you, and with with your business analysts and through them your customers uh, and your project manager, um, so that everyone understands what's happening. Hey, we this particular segment, you know, we we really didn't understand the accounting rules. Turns out the accounting rules were far more complex than we thought. We're, you know, that's going to change things. Um, that was an interruption to our anticipated workload. Um, if you manage expectations realistically, uh, you, you'd be surprised how often you, you get very uh, positive responses, even when messages that you have to deliver aren't positive. Yeah. Well, I, I've heard it said that uh, – and my boss actually says this, and I think it's pretty smart. He says the second you're, you feel that you're over-communicating is the point that you actually are probably just communicating enough. That's, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, and then, you know, but then someone like me, it's like, oh, 
you know, I feel like I'm just bombarding these people with information and, you know, you know, well, one of the things I find is when we're, when I'm doing a project, you know, we have a project plan, right? You know, and I'm sure you do too. You know, it's like you have these tasks, these deadlines. And one of the, one of our things has been to really make our process transparent to our customer because they're paying for it, whatever. But then we get into this thing where, you know, sometimes you're saying, you know, the estimate is going to, it's going to be this. And I'm going to have this done about this time. And the customer starts wanting to make your – starts holding you accountable to your internal goals. You know, it's like I'd like to have this done by then. And they, they're they like, why don't you have this done now? You know, why are you over budget on this part when in fact it's really kind of, you know, noise? You know, it's like – you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and it's it's a case then of managing expectations uh, correctly. You know, in that sort of case, uh, you really need to distinguish between your internal goals and your shared milestones with your customer. Where you know the goal may be we'll complete the accounting subsystem by you know next Friday, but the real milestone is well a month after that we'll be presenting the interface to this as a milestone. Yeah, right. I, I, I like that. Um, I always make it a point when I'm working with a, with a customer to explicitly denote our milestones and deliverables um, as their own list. Um, and that it clears up a lot of issues when you know you do say, hey, you know, we, we're running behind on this. We do or don't think we can make up the time. Um, you know, it, it man- again, it all comes back to managing expectations uh, realistically. Managing expectations. So what is the Excalibur? Or like if you just had to say my catch-all solution for managing time is? Wow. That's a difficult question to answer. My realistic answer would be there's no magical answer. Um, The best answer I've found is honest – being honest with yourself in your daily task list, um, maintaining that on a daily basis. To thine own self be true. And and absolutely, and the more trouble you have with it, the more detail you should put on this list, because um, that some people just don't just don't think this way natively. Um, so the more difficult it is for you, the more the more effort you should put into it. Um, basically, I show up to work in the morning. I take uh, half an hour to an hour. Um, I'm not available. I'm not answering the phone. I don't open my email when I arrive. Um, and my first thirty to sixty minutes is spent simply evaluating my to-do list and uh, you know updating it with yesterday's changes um, and and focusing what I need to be doing today. Um, an important part of that too is don't open your email first, don't check your voicemail first, get your plan ready, and then start processing uh, the changes and interruptions that you need. Good advice. Good advice. And my ma- magic magic wand for for managing time is. Do everything and work late if you have to, and then complain that you're overworked. Sleep is optional. You can sleep when you're dead. Sleep is for the weak. (laughs) You know what? Sleep was invented so that animals could get killed by other slower, clumsier animals. That's why it's it's totally optional. Exactly. (laughs) In all seriousness, if at the end of a work week you find you're working overtime consistently... Um, without relief, um, that's usually a sign that either you're not managing your time effectively and you're actually wasting a lot of you know your work hours, um, or you know that the workload is not realistic to um, a healthy work week. Remember, after after your eight-hour day, your your productivity falls off very quickly. 
Um, you can easily get into the into a death march cycle where you're working 12 to 14 hour days, um, and then you realize you're spending over half your time fixing the mistakes you're making while you're tired. Good so, point. So it's it's definitely something to always try to be alert for. Um, working lots of hours doesn't mean that you're producing lots of work. Well, interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear more about uh, project management from Pat. Well, if you're still with us, thanks for listening. As always, you can find the show notes for this as well as all episodes at www.tweakandgeek.com slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please send those via email to tg at tweakandgeek.com. And I want to remind everybody that we're now in iTunes. So listen to our iTunes podcast. Give us some good comments so we can go up in the ratings and appear on the front page. Thanks for listening. Have a great Thanksgiving.